you are now entering the Podglomerate. Hello and welcome to Plus 7 Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. The show has been on an unexpected break for a few weeks thanks to Hurricane Irma, but don't worry, everything is fine here. Uh, we didn't get hit directly and we were actually luckier than many of our neighbors even. Uh, our area is 90% back to normal by now, so so don't worry about me. Um, I will call attention to the many people out there who could use your help and attention from the areas that are hit by natural disasters, uh, Southern Florida, Texas, Puerto Rico, and Mexico, just to name the ones within about a thousand miles from me that I know about. Before I get to the episode, I want to remind listeners of this show uh, about the loot page on the website. That's plus7intelligence.com slash loot. That is where you can enter the sweepstakes for Steam Game Keys that I'm giving out. The first drawing is October 7th for the game World of Goo. I talk about it a little bit more in previous episodes. You can enter it at any time, and you're automatically in every monthly drawing for the year. So after World of Goo, there will be 11 more games I'm giving out, so 11 more chances to win. Uh, that page, the loop page, is also one of the easiest ways to support the show and, and share it with your friends. You can click a button to share links to the show or leave a review, for instance. Every time you support the show through that page, you get more virtual raffle tickets toward the sweepstakes. So go to plus7intelligence.com slash loot, L-O-O-T, to find all of that. And the link is always in the show notes. Now. On to the episode. This episode, I'm talking with Betty Adamu about her firm, Research Through Gaming. What she does is a mix of psychology and game design, technology, and business that all combines and works together to solve modern problems. Let's start. All right, today I am happy to be talking with Betty Adamu. She is the founder of Research Through Gaming which creates games for companies to conduct brand research. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Betty. And thank you very much, Chess, for inviting me. And um, yeah, so excited about what you're doing with this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. Uh, you've been very helpful and welcoming guests to uh, uh, work with so far. <laughs> oh, well, nice to know. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it, it absolutely deserves applause. Um, I think lots of people who are probably going to listen to this podcast and your others um, are probably going to be, you know, just so delighted as I am that there is someone out there who's taking the time to do more to showcase the impact that games have on different areas of people's lives and in different industries. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. And, yeah, very excited to be interviewed by you. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's very great to hear. The first question is, what led you to founding Research Through Gaming? Right. Okay. Well, um, there was a couple of things that happened at the same time. And uh, this is a, a story, actually, I get asked to share a lot um, because there was a lot of kind of, I guess, serendipity involved as well as, you know, me, me kind of persevering and pushing through. Um, but basically, I used to work at a software company called Nebu. Um, who are based in the Netherlands and they specialize and still specialize in um, software for surveys 
And uh, while I was working there, I um, was um, collaborating with one of their developers called Marco on kind of just creating more engaging ways of you know, people interacting with surveys. So it was very basic in a lot of ways in terms of, you know, improving the way a button looks, you know, very kind of graphical and superficial in that sense. Um, but the more kind of me and him were collaborating and, and thinking about what we can do to make the surveys more engaging, it just kind of came to a point where we were like, oh my God, wouldn't it be really cool if they could be more like games. And then that instantly just kind of opened Pandora's box of ideas um, and just kind of like, you know, bouncing off each other. Um, And at that time, I was going to do a conference talk at an event called Casro in Las Vegas. So I put it to my colleagues, the the other management uh, part of the management team at Nebu um, about, you know, could I do... Um, a conference talk about possibly using surveys as games Um, and they were all for it you know they were very encouraging very supportive so I wrote up this um, academic paper about the prospect of using games for research and built like a taxonomy of the different kinds of research games that you could have Um, but seriously Chez this was all very theoretical right this is just like you know all the all the ideas and how it could look it was just kind of very like almost like brainstormy at that stage Um, but I did do some research to try and back it up in terms of kind of floating the idea around with the general public in the UK so we did a survey um, (laughs) using a traditional survey format to ask people around the UK what would they think about the prospect of using games and would it make a difference to them if surveys were more fun and the data coming back was conclusive that yes people would embrace games yes they would embrace um the surveys if they were more fun and engaging if they could learn something from them you know it wasn't just kind of like this one-sided relationship um and literally I gave the conference talk in Las Vegas and I'd never been there before so that was quite exciting in itself and um literally I had a queue of people waiting to speak to me after which was amazing but also the 23 year old me at the time was quite overwhelmed because I'd never spoken at a conference before And I guess in a lot of ways, I didn't realise the gravity of what I was saying. Um, But yeah, these these people were just like, oh my God, this sounds amazing. And, you know, can we have Nebu's price structure for this using this methodology? And I was just like, oh shit, this is actually something we don't do. This was just an idea. So I kind of like created this... um, (laughs) if you like you know big bang about you know this new way of doing research but without it being something that the company I was working for actually provided um so kind of what happened after that is um a lot of my colleagues in the industry who are who were at the time you know older and wiser than me were just kind of like look this has clearly gotten people excited you know you need to start research through gaming up as a company um and you know we'll be there to guide you and support you and things like that um but yeah Chez at the time I was like living in a house share with other people and like working out of my bedroom so I was just like I don't know anything about starting a company like you know this is all very new to me and you know yeah so anyway cut very cut very long story short you know people around me were very supportive 
and also quite realistic. They were like, do you want to wait until you have kids and a mortgage to start a new company? Or do you want to do it now where you have probably the least amount of responsibilities in your life? So, yeah, and that's and, and the reason it's called Research Your Gaming is because the paper that I um, presented at that conference was called The Future of Research Through Gaming. And so I thought, well, I'll literally take the name, you know, it says what it does on the tin. And, um, and yeah, and that was that. And I started Research Through Gaming from my bedroom at the time. Um, and yeah, things just went from there. What, what's your background in, in games? Did you play a lot of games? And is that what kind of inspired the, the original question that, uh, that sparked the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, there are hundreds and thousands of people out there who are much more into games than I am. But I did grow up on games. I'm an 80s kid. So when the first Nintendo was out, I was on there 24-7. And while I was working at Nebu and was having those kind of ideas with Marco, the developer, about using games, I was actually addicted to World of Warcraft and Farmville at the time. Um, Listeners, please don't judge me for for saying that, especially Farmville. Um, But yeah, like, uh, you know, and it was kind of troublesome for me because in a way I'd be like, okay, well, here I am playing World of Warcraft on a five hour stretch and I'm starving and I won't even go downstairs to make something to eat because I'm so like engaged in what I'm doing. But on the flip side, like the day job I have, which is all about creating surveys, um, you know, the platform is just so boring, but there's actually so many similarities between games and uh, online games and online surveys. You know, we both platforms seek to engage participants and for them to take action. And both platforms face a lot of like um, budget and technical and time kind of challenges. But, you know, the aim is the same, right? We want to engage people, although what they do might be slightly different. So, yeah, I was just kind of like you know i i play games i've always loved games and even as an an adult you know like the way i would engage with games and that passion for games had not changed from when i was like 5 and sitting cross-legged with the marks on my thumbs from the nintendo joypad so um yeah i just i just thought you know there has to be a way and it turns out there is um but yeah like um in terms of kind of my game playing um, it's so much, it's not as much as I would like to. And I guess that's part and parcel of just time. But there's so much exciting stuff going on. Um, the most recent game I played was Monument Valley 2. So I don't know if you might have heard, Chez, um, but us two who developed Monument Valley um, earlier now, I think it's a couple of years ago now, it's been a app um, best, you know, game of the year, like won tons of awards and I think it was just like a week or so ago, which would be like um, May, June 2017 for listeners who might hear this later on. Um, yeah, they've just released like the second version. So I'd, I'd played that all in one sitting and that was fantastic. Um, but yeah, the short answer to your question is yes, gamer, love playing games. Um, my favorites tend to be like platformers. So what type of research areas have you created research games for? They've been really vast. Um, So, yeah, honestly, Chairs, like no project that we ever have for research is ever even similar to the next one coming along. So um, I've done, I've created research games for projects 
aimed at like seven to ten year old children, you know, looking at their relationship and understanding of adverts in magazines, right through to, you know, asking women in the US what they're looking from their active wear bottoms, like yoga pants and things like that. Um, you know, what, what else? Um, working with companies like Campbell's Soup to research how millennials, um, you know, are interested in different kind of concepts for new kind of flavors and packagings of soup. Um, so yeah, it might be about soup. It might be forms of identity. It might be about advertising. It might be about clothing. Um, yeah, they've all been really, really different. And most recently working with universities and in, in, in a much more B2B area as well. That's like some other projects that I've done, but yeah, literally no two are ever the same and they'll range from working with fortune 500 brands through to working with academic studies um you know crossing from like several universities so yeah they're really really different but that's what makes my work so exciting because I mean I love I love designing I am a designer by by nature that's kind of who I am and and what I do like before I ever became a researcher so I love that they're all different because it means I can design a new research game every time which is part of my job that I love the most rather than it be like say like every research project was the same then obviously it would make sense right to automate the process and have like more off the shelf games that kind of like fit a certain genre of research project because you know in that scenario I would get a lot of the same kind of research projects over and over again but yeah because they're all so different I can be much more of a designer I can tailor make the games and that way they're just kind of like to a team much more in tune with the client's needs and and what the audience are kind of looking for in terms of like how they're going to engage in the platform um so yeah all been really really different to give people an idea of what these games are like you refer to them as games and not as surveys so how much do they look and feel like a game what are they like are they like do they look like flash games do they look like a typical survey with animations can you paint a picture of what a typical survey game looks like Sure. Okay. Well, first of all, Trez, you have opened up a big like discussion um, because, you know, and this is something I talk about with a lot of passion in the market research industry. There is a clear difference or differences, should I say, between making a piece of online research as a game versus gamifying a survey that has been created using perhaps more traditional survey software tools and using more traditional kind of survey look and feel techniques. So in my experience, you know, and looking at the differences from a more academic perspective, it seems that when people are saying that they're gamifying the survey, they tend to just simply do things like reword the way a question is asked or add a like countdown time on the screen. Or they might even, and like I have seriously seen this, add graphics to the screen that have no relation to the questions themselves. Mm. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it's great that people are embracing what they feel is gamification and they're experimenting with that. But the reason that I am so um, passionate about 
you know, pioneering the use of games is that, you know, gamification is essentially repurposing games, right? To make things that aren't games as engaging as games. So for me, it's like, well, why stop at the glass ceiling of engagement that gamification offers? Why not make them look and feel um, because that's the most important part, right? I mean, like, play is subjective. If somebody is taking part in something and they don't feel that they are playing a game, then who am I to say it's a game, right? Um, right. But from, you know, what I've read from the tons of feedback we've had from participants and even having people who work in the academic area of games take part in some of the stuff I've done, you know, they, they refer to it as games. They refer to them as experiences that they learn from, um, you know, I think one of my, the, my favorite pieces of feedback that I've ever had from a participant was from a guy who was like 70 something, maybe 72, who was like, oh, I really enjoyed playing this game and I um, I learned from this experience um, and I'm not a gamer and I don't really use game apps, but, you know, I really enjoyed this. It was something along those lines. And, and the reason I loved loved this piece of feedback and I share this piece of feedback with, with a lot of audiences is because this guy who is admitting that he's maybe not necessarily tech savvy is is seeing this as a game. So this is somebody who doesn't play games but has taken part in this and enjoyed it. So it completely debunks so many myths that, you know, especially these myths that go on in the research industry that you have to be a kid to enjoy games for research or that you have to be a gamer to enjoy games for research. But my argument is no. Like, if you know who your audience are and you know what your client needs in terms of what their research needs are, then you can design a game that is going to speak to the audiences in question. Um, so the games that I make will typically have, uh, and again, you know, it will depend on the needs of the client. So some of them will have music and sound effects. Some of them will allow you to build an avatar that you'll see throughout the game. Some of them will have an overarching storyline in which you will, um, you know, evolve in that storyline and overcome certain obstacles through the quests that you do and the levels that you complete and the rewards that you have and some of those rewards are used to progress in the game so you know those kind of things take place but in terms of like the graphics right um you know again this depends on what what the kind of audience will probably engage with um some of them will look like 8-bit right like 8-bit kind of retro games whereas I've done others that look very polished um you know and and have like the brand look and feel in terms of color palette and fonts and things like that you know if I'm working for one of the fortune 500 brands who really do need to make sure that their kind of brand look is apparent throughout the game um you know and some of them will look different just because they are you know more kind of targeted for mobile use versus desktop use so yeah it really just depends on what the project is but I think the kind of theme if you like that ties them all together is that they you they all use goals rules a feedback system and give participants opportunities for autonomy and even from an academic perspective we're told that these four things are you know what makes a game a game um, you know, you have to have all those four things in place that can be challenging enough and rewarding and, you know, essentially, you know, 
perpetuate that initial motivation and engagement right through to the end um so yeah i hope that that um kind of gives an idea although there's no like set look and feel i hope that gives an idea to kind of how i work yeah that's that's really interesting that's one of the things that was really fascinating to me was you're creating games and they're used for a different purpose, but they are games. So it's an interesting example of how a game can be used for a, a purpose without compromising the fun of the game and it actually being a game. Oftentimes with gamification, you know, you're just kind of calling something a game or painting it as a game, but any game aspect is kind of an afterthought uh, yeah, rather yeah. than the base structure of what it is. Oh God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because it, it and, and it's, the, you know, the differences are so huge that they even affect your initial stages of thought and design and brainstorming. Like literally when I'm sat here with a pen and paper and I'm kind of outlining um, how this survey will look and feel as a game, that as a process is completely different to say, if I was working with, an existing traditional looking online survey and then was thinking about how to make it more engaging through adding gamification like uh layers if you like on top of it like you said like an afterthought right um yeah like the process is so different and i think for for me at least anyway that the process that i do is much more preferable because you know you're thinking about Every aspect, every pixel of that screen from the outset, you're not just kind of taking something that is quite basic, like a traditional survey, and then doing something with it after to make it more engaging. You're thinking about all of those things, about engagement, about the client's research needs, about their business objectives even, right? And like designing that whole thing from the outset and you know for, for me that surely that is so much better for clients anyway for like the research buyers because then they have something that they know has had so much more design thought and input that is truly bespoke to their needs right rather than like a standard survey that you've used a million times with a million companies and then you've added some badges to it and also I think it's wrong to kind of like dupe the participants like don't be calling something and even if it wasn't in research i think in any industry if you start calling something a game and people take part and they're not really feeling like they're playing a game but they are taking part in a gamified activity i think you're just shooting yourself in the foot from the outset because before they can even start engaging with you they're now questioning the platforming or labeling like well no this isn't dude this isn't a game right you've just stamped my loyalty card. Like I'm not playing a game here. This isn't like me playing like, you know, walking dead video game. Right. Um, so I just think like, you, you know, labeling is important as well. And I, you know, I'm aware that there are so many contrasting definitions of games and gamification in those industries. But I think like, you know, right, common sense will dictate to you, like, don't, don't be duping people that, oh, take part in our game when it's clearly, it's not feeling like a game to anyone. Like, I don't want to do that with my participants anyway. Yeah, you can't trick people into believing something's a game when, <laughs> when they're 
participating and not, you know, feeling like it's a game. It's not, it's not something you can fake someone into feeling, I guess. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid and your parents are like, oh, you know, we're going to play a game. We're going to play the tidy up the house game. And you're like, seriously, <laughs> don't, don't even try it, you know? Um, or equally, like, and I actually read this as a blog and I'm not going to name any names, but it was really disappointing to me that somebody would put this out there, um, where a researcher in a blog was encouraging people who use gamification to call it a quiz so rather than using the term survey or using the term research and again I think that's wrong like don't be calling it a game when it's not a game don't be calling it a quiz when it's a survey because you want to have people be able to trust you and you want to be a trusted reputable company anyway right so what I've done in in, in the book that I'm writing, not to kind of like plug or be salesy, but I've created like an ethics guideline um, that has like, I think it's about 12 steps of what I call 12 steps of care. So what you need to keep in mind when you are designing a game-based survey, whether you're using games or gamification, um, you know, and that, and it covers things like, you know, being ca- careful about your labeling and not trying to dupe people, not calling it a quiz when it's not a quiz. And actually you want people to know that this is a piece of research that you're delivering to them. They have a right to know that. They have a right to know that their data will be collected for research purposes, that you know somebody may commercially benefit from their data. You want to let them know where their data is being stored. So all those very important market research standards and guidelines need to be adhered to. So you... So from that point of view, at least you can't be like duping people, let alone from a perspective of just kind of like having a relationship where people can trust you and be involved in something without feeling like, hold on, you told me that this is this was a quiz, which has so many different varieties, but this actually feels like a survey and my data will be used but that's not been made clear to me so yeah so I think like even just wording it in other ways as well using things like quiz and um you know some things that some other people came up with like um almost like you know you get those social media like you you take part in something and you get like a certain kind of result like, I don't know, what kind of, what, what Pokemon character are you? Like, whatever the hell it might be. You know, even stuff like that. So, so yes, although it's all fun and games, um, pun intended, you know, as researchers, we absolutely have to be on top of um, instilling that trust and um, those market research guidelines in what we do as game-based research practitioners. We can talk about your book in a minute. I did have one question Um I was curious how, you know, since these games, they still collect information for a survey. How is that information collected? Or I guess it might depend from game to game, but do the participants see questions on the screen or are you more subtly collecting analytics or, or other information, activity information to get answers to the questions that, that you're set out to find answers for? Sure. Um, so to answer the former part of that question, so para data and metadata are collected. So it will be anything from, um, you know, the time of day that somebody started 
their research game and the time that they finished or how long they might have taken to respond to specific questions or react to certain scenarios. Um, so, so those types of, um, data are collected as well as of course what people might answer in terms of like a multiple choice question or an open-ended verbatim response which for people who are unfamiliar unfamiliar sorry with market research jargon what that basically means is like a a, you know it could be like a box where you type in like you know you could say whatever you want to say as a participant right so those two different types of data are collected and in terms of like the process of collection and how that looks almost like in in terms of like the other end, um, it's very similar, if not the same, to what a research buyer would be used to. Because one of the things I was really passionate about when I first started the company is like I didn't want to alienate clients that they were commissioning me to make a research game. So they were using what would be for them at least a completely different methodology of research that they weren't used to and then you know like scare them off because the data output looks any so different right it's anything they've worked with and you know they, they, they don't even know like how to analyze it or how to look through it so like in traditional um, online surveys in terms of data output you would normally have like an excel or csv file or spss and you would usually see like all the questions as columns and like coded responses in those columns for all the different participants who took part so you know if you had four answer options and participant x clicked on the first one then that would appear as code one in your data or whatever um so it's still the same so even like the clients i'm working with right now like they will receive a data export where they can see all the information in in columns like as they're used to all the variables are split out in a binary format that they can then analyze with the the analysis packages that they are used to using so that makes their life a lot easier and you know it makes my life easier as well because it means we can talk about the information and extract the insights from that data in a way that is much more familiar to us so we're not kind of like relearning the wheel in that aspect so you had this idea of of using games for research and you did your own research to see the viability of it and the ideas behind it. But, you know, it's not just the idea of, hey, let's make surveys fun. It There's actually some science behind, uh, <laughs> yeah. behind uh, why games are so effective. In your work, you talk about the three pillars of science kind of addressing that can you can you talk to talk to those a little bit yeah sure um well i mean i think it's it's first off quite safe to say that you know hey there is a lot of science and fun and happiness um you know and it's it's been a big talking point for years and and i think basically what what you know researcher gaming is doing builds on that um you know and when i talk about those three pillars of science on on the researcher gaming website that is very much a watered down version of the gargantuan amount of academia out there that supports why we should be using games for research so you know we know from people who play games that the reason that games are so engaging is because they you know, when well-designed, they satisfy for psychological human needs, which is which are our needs for mastery, autonomy, relatedness and purpose. Um, you know, and we can find that in other things that we take part in and other activities that we do. But 
games are said to be the most engaging medium of all time because when well designed they consistently satisfy those psychological needs um and so once I started to dig into that knowledge you know well, well why why is it so engaging what you know why are, what why what happens when those psychological needs are satisfied and again through more academia and um more statistics we know that when those needs are satisfied um one of our four what are commonly known as happiness chemicals are released called and one of those is called dopamine um and dopamine is when uh, is a, is a chemical that you are likely to have heard of when people talk about um falling in love that we have increases in dopamine levels when we're falling in love or when we're playing video games and that happens you know that is a that is a um, a physiological response um, to our psychological needs being satisfied through games. But then you draw down more, right? Okay, so what is it in games that satisfies those psychological needs? Well, when you break down what games have, those goals, rules, feedback systems, and opportunities for autonomy, you can almost directly link that to mastery, autonomy, relatedness and purpose which are our four psychological needs so when we think about um purpose as one of our psychological needs and you look at one of the four game ingredients of goals well then that makes complete sense right you've got goals in games that's going to satisfy your your feeling of purpose so all of that crosses over and so once you take all of that knowledge and all of that those those building blocks if you like and you and you instill that in a piece of research then that's what's going to make it what i call you know the triple e effect experiential emotive and engaging because you know i think in research it's not enough to just engage someone in a survey right you know like in a very kind of basic sense you want them to be intrinsically engaged you want them to have an experience and you and and also brands are so much more interested now in how emotions drive choices so one of the benefits at, at you know from the kind of client's perspective is that when we have like a scenario in a game we can see we can kind of set up different scenarios and you know encourage certain emotions that would that we would then observe how those emotions would drive choices um I mean, to give a really basic example, like a real life example, right? Like, let's say that you you are in um, a supermarket and you have your kid in the shopping cart and you are already like 10 minutes late for a doctor's appointment and your kid is like screaming like his or her head off in the shopping cart. That will create a certain emotional state within you, right? A sense of urgency, maybe a sense of panic, a sense of frustration, Um and how you would maybe move around the store and the kind of products that you may buy would be entirely different to say if you were you know on your own with plenty of time to spare or your kid was in the shopping cart but very relaxed and you were having a great day out you know so context and emotion 
are so crucial in understanding what people might buy or what concepts of design that they might go for in terms of packaging or why they would, you know, invest in one service over another. That is also so important. And and literally, I could not get to that kind of data and information and engage participants to the point where they would want to take part in those kind of like context-based scenarios in the game if I wasn't using those game mechanics I think I'd be very I'd have a very very hard time trying to get to that deeper more richer level of insight using traditional looking surveys um and not only that Chris but I mean because of the way technology has drastically changed, I can use so many digital components that you see that are familiar with games, right? Like the use of avatars or the use of timers, um, you know, like or the use of music and sound effects. And all of those things can, again, help to create a kind of um, em- like emotional state or put a certain um, kind of scenario in better context, and you don't get that with traditional surveys, um, you know, at least if you do, it's quite limited. So it's, it's, it's all, it's about using games to create that triple E effect, the, the three pillars of science, the experiential, the emotive and the engaging. But it's also about taking advantage of those digital components that have been long, you know, available to us in the research industry. Um, you know, and it's, it's tapping into all of that to get the data that clients need in the modern day you know it's it's not enough to say oh what did what did people think of my product yesterday how did people like enjoy my restaurant yesterday they want to know what is likely to happen in the future that's why context-based games which is what I'm kind of more specialized in is so important because they want to know right like okay if our business does scenario a this is likely to be the, the, the outcome versus scenario B because we have data from this game where there have been virtual simulations of different scenarios where we know how people are going to react because they've done it in a digital environment in this game. So, so that is kind of where, you know, things are, as you know, with research for gaming and I think that research in general will progress in the future, kind of more future-looking rather than retrospective. That's interesting that, you know, if someone hears about a survey game or a game for research, probably in their minds, at least and when I started, this is what I thought was, well, it's a way to kind of get answers to certain survey questions that is a little bit easier to get people to actually take the survey in the first place. But it sounds like the combination of the technology and how people engage with games that you're actually getting information that might not be available at all otherwise um, at least not in a controlled way and not in a a way that you know you have designed and can gather all the information yeah exactly and it's so unique in that way because even if you could set up different scenarios and watch how people would behave in different situations so that client's uh, you know, research buyers could have that more future looking insight, that would be not only exp- incredibly expensive to create in a kind of real world scenario, um, but it would be so difficult. 
um, you know, just even logistically. So having this almost online qualitative approach in these research games is, at least in my view, um, just the best way we have at this time in immersing a large quantity of people to understand their, their reaction to different scenarios or different maybe marketing ideas or concepts, or whatever it might be, in a way that is, you know, cost effective, um, impactful, and also really engaging for, for people to take part in. I mean, if we think about a certain brand, a certain, you know, sugar, sugary pop drink brand re- that recently had a huge marketing fail. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure, Ches, am I allowed to name names on your podcast? Are, you, are we going to get sued? <laughs> uh, they're not going to come after me, no. <laughs> well, that's okay. okay. I mean, okay, let's look at what happened with Pepsi, right? They had, you know, one of the Kardashians in their Pepsi ad, which, you know, they thought was going to be a really impactful, like, marketing story, but instead was you know, I think it's safe to say a complete flop and ended up upsetting a lot of people around the world. Now, for me, I'm thinking, well, actually, if that marketing um, story or if that like, um, like TV ad was tested in a research game environment, then they would have had so much more insight on the likelihood that that was going to fail before going out there and making what has ended up being an extremely expensive mistake. Um, and of course, you know, upsetting a lot of customers and non-customers of, of their beverages. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's as much about future looking for the brands that I work with and understanding people's reactions to different scenarios and, um, product ideas and things like that. But also, as much as it is about that, it's also about them avoiding costly mistakes. You know, if we can see that out of, you know, several scenarios of customer service or several scenarios of marketing stories, you know, X and Y, you know, fared the worst, then you're not going to go for that in real life, you know? So, you know, it's, it's about what to avoid as well, as well as what kind of business decisions that you should be making to improve your business, um, you know, products or relationships with your customers or whatever it might be. I'm curious about that circumstance. I mean, a company that large, they, they surely must have done some kind of market research or some kind of research about how that how that commercial would have played. What do you think specifically that a game might have been able to tell them that they they missed in whatever method they used before creating it? Um, well, first of all, I would have I would have started it more as a context based um, scenario. So I I probably wouldn't have done a here's a video of an ad we're looking to. Um, broadcast what do you think on a scale of one to seven I would have approached it more as a here's a tv ad you're what imagine you're watching this at home um, you know in the privacy of your own home what are your thoughts okay what about in a social media context you're now seeing this on Facebook you're now seeing this on Twitter um, oh there have been some positive comments made online about this advert now what are your thoughts Oh, there have been some negative comments. Now, what are your thoughts? I mean, obviously, I'm riffing here in a very kind of brief off the top of my head kind of way. But again, it's going back to that context of, 
you know, how are people going to consume that media? What are other people doing that might influence my consumption of that media? Um, you know, would it, you know, again, you know, and again, in terms of like the testing, would it have been different with maybe a different celebrity? Would it have been different with a different kind of story altogether, but using the same celebrity? Um, so yeah, I would have gone for a much more context based approach about when and where that media was being consumed and what other kind of comments might have been made that would affect the feelings about that media. In that context, might drive what that game would look like. So if you're looking at the social media, maybe it's some kind of social media game or I don't know, an online Sims game, something like that. That might be an approach that you take that you, you examine the context and then you take that context and turn it into the setting of the game or the mechanics of the game, stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the research objectives and the business objectives of of our clients drive the design. So literally, like, I could not even put pen to paper to start brainstorming a new design without that information. That information is absolutely crucial. You know, I never kind of like shoehorn, if you like, a design into a research project um so yeah i mean depending on maybe if i thought about this a bit more in in terms of the design and needs i would yeah definitely create a game that would uphold that 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 those research objectives and understanding the reactions in different contexts um but to go to the former part of your 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 point chairs in terms of like you know i'm sure that pepsi did do some research i'm sure that they did um, I'm sure that they do a huge amount of research. In fact, I know that they do a huge amount of research. But, you know, we don't know how that was done. And I'm not poo-pooing the method of, of their research. I'm just saying how I, I would do it. But certainly, um, research, research data and insights are not always infallible. Um, you know, research can of, and can and has helped lots of businesses around the world make certain business decisions and have a really positive impact but there are some occasions where you when where really no amount of research can truly predict how a product or a concept or a service will be received in real life um i think you know a lot of times where people talk about research or or maybe the lack of need for research people always talk about apple well you know you know i've heard this quote bandied around a lot you know like oh well you know uh, apple didn't do any market research before creating the iphone um but you know actually yes they did do some research and secondly um would any amount of online surveying or, you know, phoning people at home to do surveys on the phone or focus groups really have shown the world how popular iPhones were going to be? Um, you know, I doubt it. I doubt that any amount of market research would have told Apple that this product was going to change the world and indeed how other companies even engineer and design their own their own mobile phone devices. So research is not always going to kind of predict the future if you like um but certainly acts as a good indicator so it might be that pepsi did do some very in-depth research but you know the real life scenario of it being received you know on social media on tv or whatever was maybe something that that wouldn't have been predicted it's very much like the um uk um general election polls over here chairs i don't know if you are aware but we've we've um recently had a general election 
and um, quite infamously in market research, there have been only one or two opinion poll companies that have been in the past able to predict um, with with uh, certainty what the what the outcomes would be. Um, so you know, only a couple of opinion poll organisations have got it right when they've said that the Conservative Party will win. Lots of other opinion polling organisations have actually got it wrong. Um, now you you might wonder why this is. Is it to do with the survey methodology? Or is it to do with the fact that this is a subject where people are still quite undecided almost until the point that they go and vote? So any research that you might do even the day before is not going to really give an indication of how people are going to vote because lots of people do make a decision, you know, almost just before they go into the polling station. Or you have those people who know who they're going to vote no matter what their manifesto will be, um, and might not be not not be taking part in the survey, in which you might not have that their their insight and their information. So research will not always get it right when we look at things like maybe opinion polling or indeed some marketing campaigns or or new products. Like I mentioned the iPhone. But the majority of the time, from what I've seen in my personal experience, and I like to think that research does get it right and is a very, very useful tool. You said you're writing a book. Um, what is is the, the purpose of that book? What's what's your goal? Um, so my goal, goal is twofold. So it is to sort of once and for all, if you like, just get my knowledge and my case studies and my thinking out there to the world. Um, because so far I've only kind of released that in drips, if you like, over the last six years through webinars or blogs or conference talks. So this is for me like a one-stop shop for just getting all that information out there for, you know, hopefully many market researchers to benefit. Um, but the, the other goal is to act as a how-to guide because ultimately I do want there to be many, many more market researchers who will become research game designers. Um, I want there to be more jobs in market research pertaining to this area and this methodology. Um, I want more people to experiment. I want more people to um, be confident in this methodology. Um, and, and, and ultimately, so that participants and research buyers can benefit in the future. Because you know, Tres, if it's just me as like the only research game designer in a global market research industry, that only benefits very, very few people. But if there are hundreds and thousands of research game designers and practitioners or gamification designers and practitioners, that, that benefit will grow exponentially. And, and that's what I want. You know, I mean, I've had some people be like, well, isn't that kind of shooting us off in the foot a bit from a commercial standpoint? But I don't, I don't think it is because, you know, I mean, I'm quite comfortable with research gaming and its growth and things like that, you know, and it actually, you know, if we want to be a bit selfish about this, we could, you know, I could argue that actually more research game designers being out there um, helps to evolve the methodologies overall in which I could also benefit from if I wanted to. Um, so, so yeah, those are the two goals of the book. Um, you know, so there's a lot of like activities in there. Um, I'm very much a believer by of learning by doing. So there are a lot of activities in there that people can 
um, take part in alone or, you know, with other people in their team where they're like designing research games or exploring kind of like different design workflows. Um, you know, and, and the book is, uh, because it's a how-to guide, the book is kind of split into three worlds. So world one is about understanding. So that's where we're talking about the more academic side of things and the the evidence for the benefits of these methodologies and working to create definitions because that's something we're, that we're missing at the moment in our industry. Um, the second world, world two, is about designing. So again, we're talking about design workflow there and best practices and ethical guidelines and all that, all that great stuff. And then world three is about making. So it's about the execution that that focuses, you know, arguably a lot more on the tech side of things um, and kind of the, the data collection and the insight gathering and things like that from a game. Um, so hopefully, as a how-to guide people will feel much more confident in being experimentative with these methodologies and, and you know, and actually making research games or, or doing more gamified surveys or whatever their preference is. How do you think your methods could be applied to other areas of research? You know, there's a, a lot more information out there to be gathered that outside of, you know, brands and, and uh, what businesses want to know. How do you think that your methods could be extrapolated to to other areas of knowledge i think i think well I, I first i need to have a deep think about the variety of platforms that people might want to gather information that haven't already been quote unquote gamified um so when we think about things like um loyalty cards um that would be, in many people's point of view, a example of gamification because you um, are, you know, gaining points for doing different tasks, and there are, you know, there are goals in collecting certain points, and you get bonus bonuses like, oh, if you shop this weekend, you get triple points or whatever it might be, and and that is a platform for data collection. And you know, supermarkets have for a long time benefited from the big data coming out of how people shop and um how different types of people shop and when they shop and the and um you know how they take advantage of different discounts and things like that so that is a platform for data gathering that has already benefited let's say from kind of game-based approaches um in terms of other platforms of gathering information um literally off the top of my head i can't think of any unless you Chez, might have some ideas about platforms that we might use for information gathering I guess I I briefly listened to podcasts about um, economics and and world health, and a lot of the times they're talking about how to gather good information and all the pitfalls of in the past of of getting inaccurate information and and how that that plays a really big role in if you want to vaccinate a population but you don't know how that population will react to an outside medical team, if they will even trust that team, whether there's uh, general bad sanitation practices right, right. or whatever they get in the way. There's lots and lots of stories of people trying to do good and trying to make an impact. And sometimes it completely backfires. And I don't know, when I saw what you were doing, that's kind of what I thought first is um, oh, right. there's, there's a... There's a lot of governments and stuff that are operating on on bad info and they don't have the right context. Something like this gives can potentially give information that 
people might not give in a survey otherwise. Sure. Okay. Well, I think, um, I mean, that's a fantastic example, uh, Chez. Uh, really, really interesting because at that point, um, I would go back to those ethics guidelines that I mentioned earlier because one of them is about being sensitive to your audience and being sensitive to the content. So, bearing in mind, right, that games are meant to be, you know, we're not meant to be, but, you know, games are synonymous with words like fun, right? Um, in that scenario, and in lots of other kind of scenarios where the content of the research might be taboo or sensitive in nature, you need to be much more tactful in terms of your design approach if you're going to create a survey as a game. Um, and I have had some um, experience in this a few years ago um, where I was working with um, a team who were holding up a large academic study. So the team of uh, people at the client side were like, seven or eight individuals who were academics working across many universities around the UK and, and indeed a couple in um, other areas of Europe who wanted to understand what people in the UK think about existing forms of how they identify who they are and how they authenticate their identity in various scenarios, whether it's, you know, letting your mobile phone know that you're you or like it going into office building. Right. So like there was a lot of scenarios, but also how people perceive that they will identify who they are and authenticate themselves in the future. So this was quite a, um, I mean, from, from my point of view, this, I mean, when I first got this brief, I was like, how the hell am I going to approach this? This is, this is so big. There are so many themes. You know, um, I, I, I remember kind of going on some online forums where people were having these discussions and you had a lot of people who kind of had this fear of a big brother society, like, you know, um, in, you know, oh, uh, you know, when we identify ourselves, like we have like, Big Brother watching us, like data is collected all the time, like identity is like everywhere or whatever. So I realized that the game I created, um, or the games, it ended up being two games, one that was very much focused on the present tense, one one that was focused on the future tense, um, had to not only uphold my clients' research objectives and, and uh, more commercial needs, if you like, but also because I had become aware through my design process that this was such a big talking area, I actually went back to the client and I was like, you know, hey, we need to actually add in like these other scenarios and give opportunities for the participants to say what they want a lot more because this is such a big talking point. Um and so we, we, we evolved the, the way that some of the questions were written and added in some new ones. We had like a, a diary entry to describe a day in your life in the future, in the year 2030. Um, and th those were the most value, ended up being some of the most valuable bits for the client. Now that wouldn't have come out if we didn't know what the, real life context was right like there was this big talking point about these themes already so the example that you gave me earlier chairs about potentially people trying to do good in different countries when it comes to healthcare vaccinations but they face a bit of a not not backlash isn't the right word but maybe not so much of a, of a welcome as they expect and, the, and some of their research didn't show that 
if we know that this is an issue, I think we need to, through a tactful design platform, you know, in a research game, let them know that it's safe to air their views in this platform. And you don't just build that through goals, rules and feedback systems. You you build that through words. You say to people, we are aware of how some of the um, people might feel about receiving vaccinations from such and such a company or whatever. You let them know you already get what's going on, but you're just trying to find out more detail. That develops trust. That makes them feel like, oh, they have already like listened or they're already aware. And now I feel, feel much more comfortable to like share much more detail. Because I think part of the problem that any participants might have with, you know, disclosing um, information that might be quite taboo, like opinions that they're not sure will be well received or not in a survey, is because they're not, they don't, they don't have a relationship with the, the researchers at the other side, right? They don't know who they are. Um, you know, a lot of the times it might be that the client remains completely anonymous. So I think by just kind of using your words, right, and just saying we're aware that there are some issues and we want to understand those issues much more so we can help, that, in my view, is enough to really help that process of people not only taking part in surveys, uh, but being much more comfortable and honest to answer the questions. Um, so how can listeners find out more about you and uh, and about research through gaming? Yeah, well, thank you for your time, Chase. It's been it's been great. Thank you for your interesting questions. And if anybody wants to reach out, you can say hi on Twitter at Betty Adamu. Um, you can go on the Research Through Gaming website, uh, researchergaming.com, and there's um, a number there. You can just call up if you like, or if you want to email, it's betty.adamu at researchergaming.com. All right, great. Uh, thank you so much for, for being on the show, Betty. Thank you very much, Chairs. Take care. Betty was a real joy to talk to. Before she agreed to be interviewed on the show, we talked a lot back and forth about the purpose of the show, what we're doing here, and once she got the answer to the questions she had, uh, she turned into one of the biggest supporters of the show uh, before her interview was even recorded, and also continually since then. So a big thanks to her for taking the time to come on the show and go out of her way to to share episodes and, and share the show with people. I, I really appreciate it. There's your intelligence boost for the week. Next week, we are talking with Mike Sweetman about the parallels he sees between games and his mindfulness coaching. Before then, be sure to check out the loot page at plus7intelligence.com slash loot to support the show while giving you a shot to win free games. The link is in the show notes. And a hot tip for those of you who listened through this whole episode uh, since I missed two episodes, I haven't had a chance to really get the word out as much as I could have about uh, this first month's drawing. So if you enter now, your chances are really, really good. Uh, so keep that in mind. Plus7intelligence.com slash loot. The link is in the show notes. So check that out, and I will see you in seven.
the Podglomerate, a Sonic Universe. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. You might know about climate change, but do you know how it's changing life on our coasts? I'm Carlisle Calhoun, co-host of Sea Change, the award-nominated podcast from WWNO, New Orleans Public Radio, and PRX. Each episode, we dive deep into the environmental issues facing coastal communities, bringing you stories that go beyond the headlines, from species under threat to climate migration. Because we have a lot to save, and it's time to talk about a sea change. Listen to new episodes of Sea Change wherever you get your podcasts.